0: LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's spirit to engage in his redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're in a series entitled, Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And we are considering how God works in us and for us and through us to bring a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. And really, we're, the plane is in final descent. And uh, we're going to do Touchdown today, uh, and then next week we'll apply the brakes and stop the series. I hope the series has been helpful for you. I would encourage you, um, as you've considered all the things that God has said to you through this study of the book of Deuteronomy, even to take a journal and capture some of those reflections so that you can see how God's been speaking to you, and you can learn more intimately how God works in your life through His Word and His Spirit to bring about His will in you. And so I hope and pray it has been encouraging. Today, in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to sing to us. Just so you know, I'm not going to sing to you, but Moses is going to sing to us. It's a song that he sung, and in all of his teachings, he's taught the people The Word of God through the law and how it applies as we've seen uh, throughout the chapters. And today, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to give them a tool, a way to remember what they've learned about God. And how better to do so than a song, right? How many of you can identify a song that helps you really remember a relationship? You know, a song that when it comes on, you hit the power off button because of what it reminds you of, right? Okay, let me me go a different way. How many of you made a great mixtape? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel sorry for the younger generation that is enslaved to only be able to make a mixed playlist. What fun is that? I mean, those mixed cassettes, remember when you scratched through your ex-girlfriend's name and wrote the new girlfriend's name and said, baby, I made this just for you right? Sorry, I don't mean to bring up any bitterness in that, but anyway, it's just some fondness, you know? Maybe some of you still listen to Chicago and Air Supply and those kinds of things. But in this song, Moses provides principles to guide the people in their relationship with God, and that's what we're going to look at today, because all relationships are founded upon principles, And we don't think about relationships in that way. It's kind of unromantic to go, listen, baby, what you and I got, it's principled, right? But every relationship has principles, and you need to know those principles uh, so that you can uh, understand the foundation that that relationship is based upon. Let me just share one illustration from my own marriage about how a principle is essential for us in our marriage. I had to learn very early on this principle, and I'm going to state it for you in its official language, that I, Lane Harrison, am responsible for the dumb things that I do in my wife's dream. See, I didn't understand that principle when we first got married, but I have come to understand that when my wife's wife wakes up and I did something stupid in her dream, even though I wasn't really there and I don't know about it, I am responsible for it. She's going to be mad at me about it and I better be kind to her because of it. That's an important principle for my marriage. Right? I had to learn that. Well, hopefully the principles we look at today are going to be a little more serious than that one. And surely they will be. But that's what Moses is doing. He's providing a tool, a song, that they can sing, that they can recite together to remember that they are living in relationship with God. Because friends, life in relationship with God is built only on the rock, Jesus Christ. And that's what Moses is going to tell them today in a very applicable way for us. Let's look at these five five principles as we go to Deuteronomy 32 and as we begin I want to just give you the first principle uh, so that we can launch directly into them the first principle you need to understand about life and relationship with God is simply this that all of life ascribes glory to God all of life ascribes glory to God let's look at the first three verses of Deuteronomy 32 Moses writes, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like flowers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Let's stop there and look at this first principle. Moses begins with a cosmic call to worship. He calls upon all of creation to become a witness to what is taking place between God and his people. This is a very familiar pattern throughout scripture. God often calls upon all of creation, the heavens and the earth, to bear witness to what he is doing in the world with his people. And Jesus tells us later in the New Testament that if people do not praise God, the very rocks themselves will cry out. You see, all of creation was designed to bring praise and glory to God. And human beings were, were created with a special capacity to bring glory to God. And so what we learn, first of all, is that life and covenant relationship with God is a cosmically public relationship. It's cosmically public. Listen, the trees and the skies and the heavens and the earth and all that has been created is bearing witness to what God is doing in your heart and your life even today. And that's what Moses wanted to remind the people Uh, Then God's word comes to the people, he says, with a life-giving refreshment. And what he tells us in verse 2 is that the words fall on our ears and they electrify the mind, they saturate the heart, and they wash over the body with the refreshment of strength and with the renewal of our souls. And he says to us that God's word supplies all that we need for life. It is our supply for all of life. And that then finally in verse 3, understanding relationship with God and knowing His Word as our source of life, we proclaim this glory to Him. Listen friends, frame your thinking about relating to God or living in relationship to God in this way. That all of life ascribes glory to God. Every attribute of his being is worthy of glory. Every act of his mighty power is worthy of his glory. And every proclamation of his name is the same, worthy of glory. And Moses says that we are to ascribe glory. This word ascribe is very interesting. It really has a simultaneously dual meaning that we need to understand. That not only do we give something to God praise and worship and honor and glory that is his and his alone. But in the act of giving to God, we already and also extend to all of creation to come to the throne of God and join us in this act of giving what is his and his alone. So when he says ascribe glory to God, he says give it to God and invite everyone else to come and do the same thing that's what all of your life is about that's the first principle understanding that we need to have for our life in relationship with God A.W. Tozer wrote in the knowledge of the holy what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us that's pretty profound that's why I didn't write it Whatever comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say this, that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. I want to take that second statement and I want to draw it down to a personal application and simply say this, that the reason... What comes to your mind first when you think about God defines you is because the way you think of God is a glass ceiling upon you. And if you think little or lowly of God, you will not ascend to great heights for Him or in Him. That's what A.W. Tozer is telling us here. But what he is saying is this, that our ideas of God, which are not original to us, But are given to us in the word. Set for us a place where the roof is thrown off. And we might ascend to a height that is ever increasing. To a height that is unimaginably great and glorious. That this God might consume our hearts and our minds. And we might entertain to elevate our living to him and not be satisfied with just what exists on the earth ascribe all glory to God friends God will never be worthy of greater glory from us until he consumes to greater extents our loftier thoughts and deeper affections from us God doesn't want you just practicing religion He wants to so impart His life so deeply into you that the relationship that you worship Him out of is a natural overflow of what He's doing from within you. All of life is about one thing, friends, ascribing glory to God. And that's the first refrain that Moses uses to begin his song. The second principle I want you to understand is this, God is faithful even when his people are faithless. Go with me to verse 4 and let's read verses 4 and 5. We're going to cover all 18 verses, but I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5 to represent the trajectory of where he takes us. Verse 4 reads this, the rock, his way is perfect for all his ways are justice." A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so Moses sets the trajectory of this second principle in verses 4 and 5 to tell us that God is faithful. He's the rock. All of his works are just. All of his acts and his very nature in being are righteous. He is faithful even when people are faithless. And verse 5 adequately introduces us to that. You see, God is great and perfect in just in every way. People, on the other hand, are quite the opposite. And Moses draws a stark contrast between God and his people here. Because the people have treated God corruptly. They've behaved wickedly to their own ruin, but they've also destroyed God's name in the midst of it. They were a people defined by the name of God. And so the way that they lived in the land among all of the other nations would not only say something about them, but it would say something about the one whose name they bore. That's good application for us Christians, right? They acted like they were not even His people, like the covenant promise He had given to them was not worthy or their time or their attention. It reminds me somewhat of a song that kind of lightens the moment. It's a song by Billy Currington, and it's, it's several years old, but maybe you'll remember. It's a country ballad, and I, I like ballads. They tell stories, right? And, and we can identify with stories, even if we don't like, uh, you know, the country part of it, which I personally do. So um, I'm okay with that. But the title of the song is People Are Crazy. Have You ever heard it? You just don't want to admit it. That's okay. He tells the story about walking into a bar and he sits down and he begins to drink a beer and he strikes up a conversation with this older man next to him. And they talk about life and they talk about God's goodness and they talk about their own problems. And, you know, it's just a song. If you read the lyrics, it's, it's got a very real narrative to it about life. But what strikes me about this song, and really what strikes anyone, about this song, is the last line of the chorus which captures the whole song. He simply says this, God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. Now, you may disagree with the part of life that he chose to identify as good, but the premise that he makes, that God is great and people are crazy, you cannot argue with that. Right? Right? And I kind of feel like that's what Moses is saying to the people here. Life is good, but God is great and you're crazy. Because God is faithful, but people are faithless. And God is faithful even when people are are faithless. He challenges the people by calling upon history. And as we continue through these verses to 18, he does this. He he begins to call upon history. He says, why don't you call your father and ask him how God acted in his day? And call your grandfather and ask him and your great grandfather and his forefathers and his forefathers and ask of them, how did God treat you In that day, and here's what you'll find. You'll find that God has always been faithful. Even when his people act corruptly, God remains faithful. We see a clue in this in verse 9 of chapter 32 when he tells us this. But the Lord's portion is his people. Here's what God says. They're mine. I'm going to be faithful to myself. And I'm going to be faithful to the way that I treat them because they are mine. Jacob is his allotted heritage. There's hope in that, friends. And it is pregnant, but it has not yet been birthed, as we will see in a moment in the song. Friends, God's faithfulness is greater than you can imagine. And that's what he goes on to tell us in verses 10 through 14 where he records God's great faithfulness. He pursued his people into the wilderness where their sin had led them and then in the midst of the wilderness he showed them love and compassion and concern by providing for them and caring for them and he guided them by day and by night and he was leading them out from where their sin had put them to where he was going to bless them. You see God's faithfulness is greater than you can imagine. He pursues, he He cares, He loves, He guides, He leads, He provides, and He brings His blessing even in the harshest consequences of our sin. God's faithfulness is greater than you could conceive or imagine. But there's another reality beyond imagination in this principle, and it's this. It's the depth of the people's faithlessness. Verses 15 to 18 tell us how the people responded to God's blessing. It says that they took every blessing that He offered, every blessing that basically they got fat on it. They they just indulged so much that, that they just loved it. And when they took His blessing, they rejected Him. They rejected His love, they rejected His leading. They rejected the hand that had fed them. They worshipped false gods that they did not know and forgot about the one true God that they did not. Or excuse me, that they did know. And we want to look at them so often and we go, Man, those Israelites. Wow, how could they do such a thing? But before the question even finishes rolling off of our tongue, we're reminded it's not that hard. Because our hearts are prone to wonder too, are they not? And how prone my heart is. You see, this second principle is simply this, that God is faithful even when His people are faithless. Friends, do you remember the four pillars that we grounded this whole series on? Four pillars that were foundational. And the reason we're coming back to them now is because the same guy wrote both of them. And what he started in chapters 1 through 3, he's bringing to a full culmination in chapter 32 to teach them through this song that God is always faithful. You've got to remember so you'll turn to him. So what does God do then when his people treat him with utter and faithless contempt? Well, that brings us to verses 19 through 27 and to our third principle. And it simply says this, God disciplines his children in love to bring hope to them. Look at verse 19 through 22 with me and see how God disciplines his children. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And here's what he said. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. They've made me jealous with what is no God. They've provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Let's pause there for a moment. I don't know about you, but but here's what I take away from what God is saying in those verses. He's really serious right now. And here's a lesson I've had to learn in my life. When, when, When the conversation turns really serious and it matters, Lane just needs to shut up. Because like I like to have one-liners that just kind of lighten the moment because it makes me feel better. It's the way that I handle life. But this is not a moment for one-liners. Store it away. Tag it so you can categorically find it if you need it later. But do not lay it out right now. This is a serious moment. God disciplines His children in love to bring hope to them. That's funny. Every time my daddy told me this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, I never believed him. I never believed him. But I'm going to tell you what. You can believe God. Father who loves his son disciplines him. And that's the only reason God disciplines his children. Is because he loves us and he wants to bring hope to a place that we've gotten ourselves. That is hope. The Lord sees the disdain of the people and the contempt with which they're treating him. His heart is broken and simultaneously angered by the sin. And so he turns his face because he knows where their sin ends. That's what he says, I have seen the end from the beginning. And what God wants us to do in discipline is he wants to show us where sin leads us before it ever entangles us. Right? God wants to show us where this path is going to lead us if we choose to walk it. But he's going to show it to us before we ever take the first step along it. He hurts for his people because he sees sin's destruction in their life. And so in verse 21 he says this, They've made me jealous with a no God, but I will make them jealous with a no people. The people arose God's jealousy by worshiping a God that was false. A no-god is a false idol. That's what God is saying. And so God's going to use a no-people, in other words, a people who worship a false god, He's going to use no-people to arouse the jealousy of His people in worship of their no-god. And so this no-people who were the people who lived in the land and worshipped false idols, God was going to use them to show the vanity and the hopelessness of his own people's sin and their indulgence therein. And God gave them this label because the, the only uh, uh, the one that they worshipped was false. You see, God said this, if you want to worship a false god, a nothing god, then you'll know the identity of being a no people. A no people. As long as God's people worshipped him, there was nothing to fear in the land. Not one person. Not one person. Surely not a people. But when they worshipped false gods and denied their own identity, Every no people in the land would cause them fear. And they would cry out to their no gods. But because they were false, they would not help. And when they cried out, they would learn that their false idol was dead. And they would learn that their worship of this false idol was creating spiritual death in them. Friends, God disciplines by showing that idolatry, Idolatry strips our identity and makes us into nothing. Only spiritual death comes from worshiping a dead idol, a, a false god. And so the first thing God wants us to say, see here, and that he's saying to us is simple, is that you become what you worship. Your identity in life is a direct result of the God that you're worshiping in life. And sometimes we we hear that, but we go, where does that come from? It comes from all eternity past, when God is revealing himself against all the false gods that have been in the history of humanity. And so God disciplines his children in sin, and what we see is that the consequences of sin are, Very real. Verses 23 to 27, he goes on to show the reality of sin's consequences upon the people. Remember, what did he say he wanted to do? I have seen their end, and I want to show it to them. They've already walked into it. I want to show them where they're headed so they'll have a good understanding because I have seen this. Friends, consequences from sin occur. Why? Because God has cursed sin. We've already talked about that several times in this series. And he judges sin. And those consequences at times for the people of Israel would be very real and very severe, very heavy at times. And they would cause suffering to become hard and painful experiences for God's people. You see, you need to understand, friends, that God allows His people to experience their sin's consequences so that they can understand the damage, the destruction, and the deadliness of their sin. When we feel the consequences of our sin, when condemnation sits heavy on you because you've done it again, right? When shame sets in and it just begins to blacken your heart and it just begins to cloak your eyes and you realize, I am so ashamed. God's saying to you at that moment, this is where that road ends. The guilt that is heaped upon you in the moment of your sin, God is saying to you, listen, listen, this is where that practice will always lead you. It's a dead end. I've seen it and I want to show it to you. But friends there's hope. Listen there is one thing that God will not allow. One thing God will not allow for the adversary to ultimately be victorious over his children. Let me tell you why that's important why it's right here because when you are under the heaviest moment of suffering in your sin and the consequences thereof you'll believe God's forsaken you and let me tell you what's not going to be a principle of relationship with God today when God ever forsakes his people you hear me do you hear that God never forsakes His people. He is faithful. He is faithful. In a struggle with sin, when it sits heavy and hard upon our lives, we often look for complete victory as the only solution. Man, we want to be rocky on the top of the steps, right? Just, yeah, you know. And, and we think anything less is not to satisfy us. But friends, we shouldn't miss the hand of God at work in our life when we see even things like the reprieve of sin's heaviness and hardness upon us. Listen, friends, when God reaches His hand into the throes of sin's entanglement that is enslaving you and dragging you down, what He does is He brings you out, often along the same path that you walked in, so he can show you sin's end from the beginning. And you can see what step you took to deny him. What truth you rejected so that you could curse him. He shows you the path to which you got into this sin. So he can untangle it for you. And reveal it to you. And deliver you from God is gracious. Do not dismiss His hand at work in your life when you see the reprieve of sin's heaviness and its hardness upon you. God may not completely deliver you when you think He should or in the way that you want Him to, but even a lessening of sin's harshness upon us demonstrates God's grace to us. Now, I'm about to move out of just working through the Scriptures for a moment, and I'm about to apply that in some very practical ways for you. I want you to understand this. If you're fighting a habitual practice of sin in your life, it might be open in public, it might be private. Either way, it doesn't really matter. But here's what I want to give you counsel to do. When you fight habitual sin in your life, watch to measure the frequency and the intensity of that sin. If you want to know what God's doing in your heart, And you feel like no victory is coming to you because you've not been altogether delivered from it at once. Neither the practice nor even the desire of it Realize this, that as God pulls you out and he untangles you from sin's entanglement and he's showing you the end from the beginning, he's bringing you along a path that you can recognize at a much earlier stage when you turn around and begin to follow him again so that you'll go, no, not walking down that path again. And when you watch for the frequency and the intensity of sin's temptation and its hold upon you, you will begin to see grace is working because the grip of the adversary is loosening. And the number of times and the time between the times in which you uh, practice that sin, you'll see this, that where at first it's every day, multiple times a day, you can't get away from it, it consumes your every day. All of a sudden you'll wake up and you'll see God's grace at work as you're taking in the word and as you're praying in the spirit and the Lord is leading you and you'll realize it's been three or four days since I've even been tempted by that sin. Now, be careful because mountaintops are high and we can fall quickly from those. That's about the time we usually do trip up on it again. But here's my point to you there would be no time between the committal of that sin if God's grace weren't present in the midst of your consequences. The next time you wake up, it might be five days later, two weeks, two months. And that's when it really gets hard because you fall again and you you become prey to it yet one more time. You go, God, I can't do this. And God's going, I know, but I'm showing you something. Just keep looking, keep following me, keep trusting me for what I'm doing. Let me tell you another thing that's going to begin to happen as the frequency of the occurrence of your committal of that sin begins to spread open is that the intensity of its weight upon you is going to begin to lighten. You see, as long as it's a temptation, you'll enter into sin. You have to have a temptation to get into sin. But here's what will happen when God's grace begins to work into your life and give you knowledge of His Word and understanding of His wisdom. And you're fighting that sin by putting your hope in God. And some days you feel like it's just words. And then other days you feel like it is wings that are causing you to rise and fly because God's carrying you. What will happen is you'll realize that that sin doesn't hold the same grip on you that it used to. You know why? Because God's grace is taking more real estate in your heart. And God's goodness for you is becoming more hopeful than that sin is to you. And even though you will still stumble and fall at times in committing that sin, you'll realize going in that you really don't want to. And when you get into it, it doesn't have the pleasure that it promised. You've been lied to and you've been deceived. And your anger will begin to burn against that sin and your committing of that sin. And you'll begin to turn to God, not in anger and not rejecting him, but for full and absolute dependence until you realize it's gone gone it's broke I'm free I'm free you don't ever need to walk back into the place where temptation comes to you in terms of that sin but you'll realize this it no longer holds the grip in you that it did because God's grace now has you that's functional that's practical working out of God's salvation In our life. Stop beating yourself up. Because of sin. Because at the end of the day friends. Listen to me. Even beating yourself up. With the condemnation shame and guilt stick. Is a demonstration of unbelief. But we qualified how? I'm trusting God. I'm beating myself up because of my sin. No what you're doing. Is you're using that as an excuse. Not to have to trust God and listen to his word. Put it down. Put it down and follow God. Okay? God disciplines his children out of love to bring hope to us. You see God allows us to see our sins end so that when it ruins us we'll see how hopeless and powerful it really powerless it really was to begin with. And then he gives us his promise. And he provides us commands so that we know how to obey. And he blesses us so so that we, we know we will be able to obey. But friends, listen. It's our responsibility to guard our heart. Look with me at verse 28 through 38. And let's look at the fourth principle. Here's the fourth principle. Neglecting godly discernment creates hopelessness. But remembering God brings hope. Neglecting. Godly discernment creates hopelessness, but remembering God brings hope. Look at verse 28 and 29 with me, and let's introduce this next section. Here's what God says about his people. They are a nation void of counsel. Now stop there and look at me. When he says void of counsel, he didn't say absent of counsel, right? Why? Because the whole book of Deuteronomy prior to this point has been what? Bringing the presence of God's truth to the people of God, right? They're void of His counsel. What does that mean? They've chosen not to consider what God has said to them. Let's continue. And there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. Here's what God is saying, friends. I've given you the truth and I've imparted the wisdom for you to see the end of your sin before you get entangled in it. And if we neglect godly discernment, it creates hopelessness for us because God said there was a void present among them, not an absence. They chose to reject and neglect his word. It wasn't that God had failed to give it. You know, when I hear this, I can hear my father asking me, did you not even consider what was going to happen before this came up? I remember when I first turned 16, I drove a 1977 Ford pickup. It was about 9, 10 years old. And in 70s, um, you can't argue with me about this because I know it's true, they didn't build vehicles to last. You know, like when a car hit about 40,000 miles, people started trying to sell it because when it hit 50, it's going to need to be, you know, now we'll drive a car at 150,000 miles and not think anything about it. That's not the way a 1977 Ford pickup was built. This thing, well, in all fairness, my dad bought it used, and then he gave it to my brother when he turned 16, and then I got it when I turned 16 three years later. So it had, been, had a pretty hard life, you know. Had 100 and I don't know. 20,000 miles or so on it so like it was on its fourth life but but worst of all we ran we lived in south arkansas which is an oil field we ran casein head gas in it like casein head gas is straight out of the ground what you put in your car today has been refined many times over and all the impurities removed and then some even purer things they tell us put in Case and head, nah, don't bother with all that. Just put it in the tank and then let's go. And that's what we did. Case and head gas in the car is like taking chewed gum and sticking it on the cylinders and putting it on the spark plugs and just gumming everything up. And about every two months, you you just have to pull everything out and replace it in the engine. And we weren't going to do that. Uh, And so this truck went about 30 miles an hour. As I think back on it now, I think, wait a minute. I think my dad knew exactly what he was doing, right? And like if you push the gas all the way, it would go, roar, boom, and backfire like a shotgun going off. So I thought it was great. I didn't want it to get fixed because then it wouldn't make that cool noise. 30 miles an hour. And, and for me, I drove at 30 miles an hour all the time. I didn't try to stop or anything. So one day I came into my parents' driveway and, and I took a hard right and immediately threw the wheel back. And, and the driveway runs along the side of my parents' house. And then they have like a, a, an out jut over the entry door with two pillars. On this day, it had one pillar. Because I didn't quite make the turn fast enough. And I took out a pillar. And the next thing I knew is my dad came flying out the door. Pillar laying flat on the ground. Truck really close to it and he says to me did you not consider what might have happened what could have happened before you drove into this driveway and hit my garage no doubt, I didn't actually I thought it was going to be cool I mean I considered I thought about all the great ways this could turn out what I failed to do was to think about all the ways it could go wrong and that's That's what God is saying. I'm going to show you the end before it begins. You see, friends, godly discernment is a measure of spiritual maturity in order to take the knowledge of God and exercise the wisdom of God. Moses identifies the Israelites' lack of exercising discernment as a principal reason that they ended up so deep in sin's consequences. They ignored his counsel. Uh, The warnings that arose all along the way, they didn't heed them. The false God that was nothing didn't look anything like God, but they didn't consider. That he was so different. Worshiping the false idols produced perversion in every provision and every expression. They could look at every other nation in the land and see what worshiping a no-god had produced. But when they said, we're going to worship that god, what did they say? It'll turn out different for me. Isn't that what we say with our sin? I know what it did to you, but I'm different than you. It's going to turn out different for me. And that's exactly what God says they said. The people ignored God and they ignored his word in every way. You see, a lack of exercising discernment led them to a point of hopelessness. And Moses points the people away from their circumstance to look rather to God's sovereignty. You see, God may use the foreign people to execute his judgment, but they themselves will not escape responsibility for their own unrighteousness. Christian, it's not not about who's winning in the moment. It's about who's going to win ultimately that determine how we live in the moment so we can be obedient for ultimate glory. It's not about whether we win over them. It's about we win in such a way because of Christ so that we can go and win them. That's what God wants to do through us. He remains sovereign. He is righteous. He is faithful. He is true. He will vindicate his people. He will show that the no-gods are, in fact, no-gods. They have no refuge for the people. Their promises are hollow and vain and futile and unfulfilled. They are powerless to provide any kind of protection for the people. And so God, friends, instead, and in contrast, always Acts to bring glory, to demonstrate that He alone is God and He alone saves. Friends, when you find yourself isolated and alone in your sin, and you may be there today, can I just give you a word of encouragement? Listen to God. seems so simple. And some of you say, well, Pastor, I, I do, but I don't hear Him. Okay, then let me... Change that counsel just a tad. Listen for God. If you don't know what he's saying yet, listen for him. He will speak. You cannot get to a place in your sin in this world where God cannot reach you with his voice. So wherever you are today, you are not too far from God. He is not silent to you. And here is what he will say to you. You have seen where that false no God has led you. Where is he now? Where is that idol? Where is his refuge? Where is his provision? Where is his protection for you? And here's what God will say to you. This is so painful, but it is so simultaneously gracious. He is not here. Because it is not real. And you find yourself entangled in the throes of your sin, and you come to a point to listen for God, you will come to the point where you understand that the sin that entangled you was the worship of a no-God, and that no-God can't help you because it's not real. Whether you're seeking pleasure, whether you're seeking power, whether you're seeking fame, whatever you worship, as you pursue any of those things, whether it's people, whether it's money, whether it's prominence, whatever the case may be, they will leave you and abandon you destitute. Why? Because they were never real to begin with. And that's what God shows to us. You see, the real question that, needs, that we need to each ask of ourselves today is this. What little indiscretion are you putting up with in your life? But what sin are you coddling? You're living like a Christian in all these areas, but over here it's a secret thing, it's a private thing. But you're coddling it because you're drawing comfort from it. And what God says is it's not real. And that very comfort that you draw from it will be the very comfort that destroys you. Some of you are in your sin and you know it and you're listening for God. And so I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. What counsel from God are you hearing but you're neglecting it? What wisdom is God bringing to you, maybe through His Word as you read it, but most likely through someone else as He's just speaking to you, whether they know it or not, but you're dismissing it? Oh, that's that's nothing. Hear me, friends. When I tell you to listen for God and listen to God, He's speaking because He is a God who speaks. Christians never enter into sin without ample warning by Spirit's conviction and sufficient provision for escape from God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing firm take heed lest he fall. No temptation has seized you except such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But when you are tempted. He will always provide a way of escape so that you can run up under it and be saved. Godly discernment directs us to run to God's way of escape, away from sin's temptation, before its snare entangles us. That's why Paul says, Therefore, flee, my beloved, from idolatry. Flee from it you see when sin overtakes when it overwhelms us God does not forget his children he allows our sin in which we indulge to overtake so that when he overtakes his our sin he shows how powerless that sin's promise was and how powerful he is friends let me just cause you to reflect for a moment where are you today are you at the end of your rope Are you at a place where you feel like you're done at the end of your strength? Are you losing hope? Let me hear me say, and I'm telling you it comes from my voice, but it comes from the heart of God. You are not forgotten by God. God's not forgotten nor forsaken you. And you may have gotten to where you are ignoring and rejecting God, but if you turn to Him just based upon His promise, He will not just let you stay there, but He will bring you to the place where He is. And the place where you are now, where you've come to the point to realize that sin has destroyed your life, or is destroying, and in the midst of that destruction, it's a wasted time. Let me tell you what sin's going to do. Sin will waste you to utter dirt in that very place. But let me tell you what God will do God will come in and he will lead you out and he will bring you to a place where he can bless you and you can know and commune with him. But even greater, even greater friends, listen, God doesn't just sweep all that under the carpet and say let's forget about it. God will take your wasted place. God will take your wasted years and he will not allow them to be a waste for you. He will redeem you. He will restore you. And where sin wasted you, God will heal you you and he will use you in that place will you believe him when God redeems he redeems to the uttermost that's why he's bringing you out slowly he's going remember that I'm going to save you from that you remember that Yep. I'm going to save you from that remember that scar I know you don't want to talk about it but let me tell you something I'm going to give you a way to talk about it that's going to actually bring joy to your life and you're going to share that joy with someone else who's already entangled in that very sin I'm going to save you from it. I'm going to save you from it. I'm going to save you from it. That's why God has not forgotten you. God may not remove you from the time you spend under sin's harsh consequences. But hear me. Hear the testimony of one. Firsthand. His grace is sufficient to redeem that time. To bring greater honor and glory when he restores you by his grace. Neglecting godly discernment creates hopelessness, but remembering God brings hope. Verse 39 to 43 gives us our fifth principle. To the no-God's powerless absent, God demonstrates His power. Here's the fifth principle. We are never without hope, nor too far from God for Him to save. Verse 39 through 40 says this. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. God swears, friends. And what God swears is simply this, that you are not without hope, nor too far from God for him to save. What he does is he flexes the very nature of who he is. I am. And he reveals his glory. And all that happened to the people of God happened. Why does he say? Only under God's power. What comfort. We may not have enjoyed it, but what comfort when we're understanding. No matter how absent or distant God may seem, he is never out of control. He raises and he swears by himself. He will win. And friends, everything that happens to you only happens within God's power. God doesn't just erase all the evil in the world yet, yet. But he does use it for his glory and his ultimate good for his people. And he'll do the same thing in your life. Friends, be careful that whatever happens to make you think that God is absent doesn't lead you to believe that God is not able. I know the consequences and the suffering of sin whether it was your sin or whether it was someone else's sin perpetrated upon you will lead you to believe that not only is God absent but that He is unable. And you can ask every generation of God's followers all of human history you can inquire of all of creation not only in this earth but of the heavens has there ever Been a moment? Has there ever been a situation when God was not able and willing? And you'll not find one testimony when God said no. Not one. If you'll trust Him, He's not only able, He's willing to deliver you from that sin. This kind of hope, friends, this kind of hope is powerful. We've seen in just the last couple of days. The, the fallout from the, uh, the earthquake in Nepal. And we've seen some phenomenal video and pictures. And I'm sure many of you saw the nine-month-old baby that was dug out from the rubble. After two days of being literally buried, this baby was dug out from the rubble and saved. I love those stories. They're so powerful. But friends, they're only a fraction of what our God is able to to do we are never without hope nor too far from God let me tell you about a thing Moses does as I conclude the sermon Moses uses the imagery of a rock to talk about God verse 4 he introduces God and here's what he says about him his work is perfect and all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness without iniquity just and upright is he and then when he's talking about the people's sin and rebellion, he, he talks about the rock again. And he says this, what you've done is you've denied the very rock who is your origin, your creator, and your father. He followed you through the wilderness and you even drank from the rock when you got thirsty. In verse 30, he goes on to talk about the rock. And he says that the things that happened to them could only have happened if the rock would have allowed it. He said this, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up. In other words, he says these things could have only happened because God said it was okay for them to happen. But then in verse 31, immediately following, he draws a stark contrast. And he says this, for the rock, little r, that you've been worshiping is not like the rock capital R and the next time he mentions the little rock in verse 37 he says this when the Israelites looked when my people looked to the rock to help them, little r the rock could not be found you see they learn this, is that God is the only rock that saves God is the only rock that saves Paul tells us who that rock is in 1 Corinthians 10. The first four verses, he's actually bringing commentary about this uh, this very incident in the scriptures. And he says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock, was Christ. Friends, life and relationship with God is built only on the rock, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to return as I draw to a conclusion here. Friends, you you can run to false idols, but they can't protect you. You can call out to them, but you won't hear back from them. You can worship them, but you'll never find your life in them. You can look to them for comfort and strength, but they'll never provide any for you. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the rock, is the only rock that life and relationship with God is built on. If Moses were to write a song today, I tell you, we've already got it. And this is what he would sing to us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood, they support me in the whelming flood. Flood of what? Flood of sin. It's overwhelming us. When all around my hope gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He shall come, With trumpet sound. This is the day we're waiting for. Oh may I then in Him be found. Dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless. To stand. Before the throne. On Christ the solid rock. I stand. All other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand. Are you living your life on the rock who is Jesus Christ? Are you living on sinking sand? Let's pray. God, help us today. Help us to see Jesus as our Savior and to put our trust in Him no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what load we feel our lives under today, help us to look to Jesus, the only rock upon which we can build a life in relationship with you. And help us to trust and obey. Friend, if you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've accepted jesus as your lord and savior i want to invite you to repent of your sins to turn away from yourself and to put your faith in jesus and in just a moment when our people come to receive the elements of the lord's supper there'll be an elder here at the front i just want you to come and let us celebrate with you let us encourage you let us pray for you let us help you understand what it means to become a christian to follow jesus christian if you're here today you know the spirit is working in your heart he's speaking to you I want to encourage you to listen and obey. Trust in Him to turn away from your sin and follow Him. And as the Spirit leads, let's come to the table and let's receive the elements of the Lord's Supper and remember the salvation that only Jesus brings. Let's go before the Lord.